Good morning, everybody. As uh, Naomi read to us from the gospel uh, this morning just now, you might have thought to yourself, if, if you were here last week, you might have thought to yourself, hey, didn't we do this parable last week? Um, and any confusion about that is easy to understand because last week we looked at uh, the parable of the great banquet um, from Luke chapter 14. And the parable of the great banquet and the parable of the wedding banquet, the two parables are very similar in structure. Both are about a host who puts on a party and they issue invitations and they send out they face rejection and they invite others and they end up with a full house. Um, and there is some overlap also in terms of what they teach in, uh, in both places. The religious leadership of Israel is being directly addressed by the parable, and in both places they are being warned about something. And the warning, as we'll see, is similar. But there are differences too, aren't there? There are differences between the two parables. Undoubtedly, we're not looking at the same parable retold in slightly different contexts. A closer look will show that actually they're entirely different beasts altogether. One commentator compared moving from Luke's parable to Matthew's parable, a bit like moving from a park to a labyrinth. And another commentator suggested that Matthew's parable should just be ignored. Presumably, he didn't like it. I mean, what's not to like? I mean, it's the story of a king throwing a wedding banquet for his son and daughter-in-law, and many guests were invited, but bizarrely, they refused to come. I mean, why? Who, who would treat a king that way? Why did they refuse to come? And then the invited ones actually kill the messengers. I mean, are you kidding me? that. And in retaliation, the king sends in the troops and there's a massacre and he burns the city down to the ground. I mean, actually, that's a bit unbelievable, really, isn't it? And the next, the wedding banquet is filled with strangers, anybody and everybody and anybody and nobody, wicked people as well as good, who've been compelled to drop everything and just come. And actually, when you think about it, that's weird. However, things get weirder. One of the guests is thrown outside just because he wasn't dressed properly. I mean, really? I mean, was he to blame? Did he have time to change? How was that consistent with being compelled to come? This wedding banquet, it, you know, it might, have, it might have had a lot of planning going into it, but, you know, actually it seems to have gone seriously toxic along the way, doesn't it? I mean, uh, in terms of wedding drama, reality television has nothing on this. More seriously, though, actually, the parable is horrifying. And so we need to think about it, and we need to think about it carefully. So let's take a closer look. We're on page 803. We're going to begin at the first verse, Matthew chapter 22, verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, well, actually, our first step is to establish Christ's audience is. Who was he talking? To whom was this parable originally addressed? And actually, that's an easy question to answer because the scene opens for us in the previous chapter. If you want to flip back to chapter 21, verse 23, Jesus entered the temple courts. And while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. And who gave you this authority? 
And a conversation ensues, and Jesus responds to their inquisition with two parables. And if we skip to the end of chapter 21, we read in verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. So it's to these guys that the parable is addressed, to the chief priests, the elders of the people, the Pharisees, the elite of the religious establishment in Jerusalem. And Jesus is in Jerusalem, and not just in Jerusalem, he's in the temple, the focal point of Jewish religious devotion. And as Jesus teaches this parable, he's about three days away from being crucified. And the people who organize his death are the ones he is now talking to. It's to these guys Jesus offers a parable. It's going to be an analogy, a story that invites comparisons in order to create meaning. Verse 2. <clears throat> the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. And as we saw last week, um, this is language that the chief priests and the Pharisees, they can easily understand this, and it's familiar to them, and it might be very familiar to us too. Basically, these, these Jews, they're waiting for the Messiah to come, the Messiah who's going to save them, and he's going to make real, on planet Earth, God's saving reign over everything. On that day, God will save his people from death, banish tears and sadness, remove the stain and shame of sin once and for all. And a common way of, of thinking about this great saving event was like a banquet, a wedding banquet, a great banquet, a feast. So the Pharisees would hear king and they would think, oh, he means God. And they'd hear son and they'd think he means the king of Israel, the Messiah. And again, as we heard last week, any, any feast or dinner party or banquet in the ancient world required a double invitation system. Um, you can see Esther put this into practice in the book of Esther. You issue two invitations. The first one goes out to establish that the people actually can come. It's a save-the-date invitation that, amongst other things, allows the host to slaughter only the correct number of animals. Um, and, and the Old Testament people of God, the nation of Israel, they understood themselves to have already received this invitation. This first invitation into God's end-of-time dinner party, celebrating being saved. So, so when the Pharisees and the priests next hear about guests, their first thought will be, he means us. We're the ones who have been invited. We're the guests. As soon as the Messiah comes, we'll sit down at the banquet. Verse 3. The king sent his servants to those who'd been invited to the banquet to tell them to come. But they refused to come. And, and that's, that's the first point of shock. I mean, these men, I mean, they've devoted their lives to piety and to teaching others and leading the the, the people of God in the faith of Israel, and they instantly would have thought to themselves, oh, how can he say that we've refused to come? To what is he referring? How can he say that we've refused to come? Verse 4. Then the king sent more servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention 
uh, at all and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Um, now, as we hear this extraordinary twist in the story, we're all going to thrash about thinking, to what can this refer? What, what does this mean? We know it's an analogy, but an analogy to what? But actually, to the Pharisees and the priests, when they're thinking, how can he say we've refused to come? And he gives this information, suddenly they'd go, oh, we know what he's talking about. And he's retelling the history of our nation. Uh, the, the servants, okay, the servants are the prophets. And for centuries, the nation has ignored God, doing, doing their own thing. And many, many of them persecuted and even killed the prophets whom God sent to them. And so... After centuries of forewarning, early in the 6th century BC, the Lord brought about the punishment he'd forewarned, the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, with the survivors of that destruction going into exile for 70 years in Babylon. That's That's what Jesus seems to be referring to. That's what they would have thought. It's actually not what I think. Um, What do I hear about when I hear these words? Well, I hear Christ's words as a forewarning to them, again, of something that would have been for them in the near future, but for us is in the ancient past. Because when Jesus says these words, just for me, I hear him forewarning them of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in AD 70, some 37 years after Jesus preached this parable. And historically, um, this is what happened. Um, Having rejected Jesus and his gospel, in the decades after his earthly ministry, the Jewish people and the Jewish nation became more and more restless under Roman occupation and servitude. And more and more messiahs arose, military leaders who promised to save Israel from the Romans. And the rebellions and the insurrections and the terrorist behavior increased and increased And by AD 70, the Romans had had a gutful. They just had enough. And they sent in the troops and they utterly destroyed the city, burning it to the ground. The uh, ancient Jewish historian Josephus claimed that 97,000 people were taken captive as slaves and 1.1 million people were killed. Now, that's likely to be an exaggeration given what we now know about the size of Jerusalem in the first century, But even today, Bible scholar Don Carson believes that there is no other instance in history of a city being so completely destroyed by human invaders. Proportionally speaking, that could have been the most thorough destruction of a city ever in history. Um, And in some ways, the parable could finish there and the, the warnings already given. But it continues, and at a practical level it continues, naturally enough, because this king has prepared enough food to feed a large town. There's probably, I mean, oxen, multiple fattened calves. There's enough food here probably to feed the whole of Jerusalem. It's an extraordinarily costly feast. So then he, he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go, 
to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Um, this scene is a little bit difficult to reconcile, isn't it? It's, it's a little bit difficult to reconcile servants going out to the street corners when we know the city's just been burned to the ground. Um, there is a phrase here that's a little bit difficult to translate. The phrase has been translated in our Pew Bible as street corners, but it is literally ways through which ways go out. And more traditional translations render it as something like main highways or partings of the highways. What what you get from the phrase is a sense that it's the place where the roads come together. Um, Probably outside of the city, the place where the main paths split and diverge to the small villages. Um, In other words, the people who are being gathered now by the servants are outsiders. They're not citizens. And again, what would the Pharisees have heard by this? Well, without doubt, they would have heard Jesus saying to them something that he has only just finished telling them. Skip back with me, if you like, uh, a handful of verses into chapter 21, verse 43. Jesus has just finished telling them, Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. And the Pharisees would have heard this to mean God is rejecting Israel and giving the kingdom of heaven over to the Gentiles, to foreigners, to non-Jews. And whilst the prophets of the Old Testament, without doubt, they spoke openly about Jewish, sorry, about Gentile inclusion into the kingdom of God, what, G, what they thought Jesus was saying was an idea that to them was deeply offensive. And uh, the question for us is, if that's what the Pharisees thought Jesus was saying, were they right? And the answer is no. It's, it's actually got nothing to do with race or ethnicity. It's, it's got to do with faith. And what they are right about is that actually suddenly race and ethnicity make no difference at all. Um, this is what Jesus is talking about, a radical invitation into the kingdom now that will include openly everyone, Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free. And that's the message that we should, I think, hear at this point. The kingdom of heaven, from our vantage point in history, it's just like um, in our day, the kingdom of heaven is servants rushing all over the place and issuing invitations to come into table fellowship with God, an invitation that's, that's, that's open in response to the extraordinarily costly grace of the host. Um, that's, that's the period of history we live in. This invitation is to be extended to every tribe, language, nation, culture, and subculture, people group, age, and stage, even children, teenagers, and adults. Yay! Or something like that. Um, well, there's been no shortage of challenging stuff in this, uh, in this, uh, this parable so far, but now, in fact, actually the parable gets even more difficult to understand Um, If you'll humor me for a moment, I'm going to read from verse 11 to 13 in my own translation. Try and bring some stuff out. Um, Verse 11. And the king, entering to look at those reclining at table, saw there a man who was not wearing wedding garments. And he said to him, Friend, how did you enter here without having wedding garments? 
and he was made speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, binding him foot and hand, cast him out into the outermost darkness where there will be crying and grinding of teeth. Um, just to point out the obvious, this is deeply shocking and deeply provocative. For a bunch of travelers and itinerants, is it fair that suddenly one of them gets picked up for not dressing right? I mean, and what's the significance of these wedding clothes anyway? And just in case you haven't noticed, it's not like he's just asked to leave. It's not like a waiter sidles up and says, I'm sorry, sir, we do have a dress code. I'm going to have to ask you to leave. No, he's, he's bound. He's tied up. He's thrown out. And he's not just thrown out where it's nighttime. He's thrown out into somewhere where there is outermost darkness, where there is crying and grinding of teeth. What does this all mean? Well, well let's think about the clothes first. Um, one idea, which is reasonably popular but limited historical evidence, one idea is that kings, when they gave a feast, they gave everyone a robe to wear, a uniform, if you like. And if that's what's intended, then we can see that this man is someone who, unlike everybody else, is happy to be there, but he's going to be there, thanks very much, on his own terms. Another idea, which is also possible, is that each person, as best as they were able, did have the opportunity to freshen up and put on their best clothes. But this man, unlike everybody else, is someone who made absolutely no effort. No, no good work. Um, either way, his response is clearly an affront to the king, it's clearly an insult, and it's clearly a failure to understand the king's true authority. So, so which idea is right? Well, I, I think possibly both ideas are right. Um, you see, right from the beginning of the Bible... All the way through to the end of the Bible, one way of visualizing God's salvation is as a garment. Uh, when we sin, it leaves us naked. It leaves us vulnerable. And when God saves us, he clothes us, taking away our vulnerability and disgrace. In the book of Revelation, the saints, God's saved people who are with him in his heavenly space, they are often depicted as wearing white robes. And, of course, the good question is, why white? And the answer is, we're told twice. In chapter 7, the robes are white because they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, if you can picture that. This is a symbolic way of saying that they have acknowledged before God their need of forgiveness. They've said, Jesus died on a cross for me. I accept. Thank you. I'll take that forgiveness. The offer having been secured, uh, the offer of forgiveness having been secured through the blood of Jesus, the death of Jesus on the cross. In other words, the saints in heaven have white robes because they have accepted God's terms. They acknowledge that they are sinners. They have repented, turned back to God. In chapter 19, which um, we uh, read last week, we again meet the saints, and they're wearing fine linen, bright and clean, which was given to them to wear. And we're told explicitly, fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. In other words, the saints in heaven have white robes because they have made them white 
by their good works. They repented, in other words, and as a result of that, they renounced sin and started to bear God's good fruit. Um, Scripture holds these two ideas, which to our ears can sound very different. Scripture holds these two ideas very closely together. We are saved by grace and by grace alone, through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is a gift from God for good works prepared in advance for us to do. This man, this man was made speechless. The verb is passive. He was silenced by the question. It exposed him. It rendered him completely uh, unable to defend his point of view. Suddenly, everyone in the room sees that this man, being in the wrong clothes, is very evil. He is stubbornly unrepentant. He's there on his terms, not on God's terms. As for the phrase, outermost darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, Actually, we've got nowhere to turn in order to understand this phrase except to the rest of Jesus' teaching because it's an unusual phrase. It's hard to understand, but Jesus, thankfully, used it a lot. And so we can see from multiple references what he means, and what he means is hell, a place of eternal regret, sadness, anger, and hatred. It's a place of hopelessness. It is a place you really, really, really don't want to go. You don't want to visit there. And actually, that's not an option because one of the bad things about this place is that if you find yourself there, there is no hope ever of leaving. S- suddenly, we're staring, suddenly, we're staring in the face uh, eternal realities, aren't we? And boy, has this parable moved us around. Um, I mean, we've gone through time and we've gone through place and we've gone through history. Well, one of the things that the parable encompasses is two offers, two rounds of invitation. God made an offer to the nation of Israel through Moses. And his offer was life. And to reject that offer was to choose death. God is now making an offer to the whole world through Jesus. That offer is life. And to reject that offer is to choose death. What's incredibly important for us to understand is that these two offers are not the same offer. The life that is on offer now is eternal life. And so to choose death in the face of that offer is to choose not a death which is not just earthly non-existence, but eternal conscious destruction in the absence of any possibility of saving hope. This thing that we commonly call hell. This parable analogically refers to both offers and both outcomes. Well, there is a point to this parable. It's in verse 14. For many are invited, but few are chosen. And if you suspect that they're not comforting words, you're right. Uh, They're chilling words. 
and they're intentionally chilling. God is sovereign over the whole thing, but for most of humanity, reality is not good news. Well, uh, let's, let's put this in context. Jesus is again warning the religious establishment of Jerusalem that he is indeed God's Messiah. They stand ready to reject him. If they do so, they invite destruction upon themselves. What was their response? Let's read the next verse, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. Well, whew, rather than take warning from the parable, they reject Jesus, and so immediately they start to fulfill the parable in such ways that as a direct result, 37 years later, Jerusalem will be destroyed. Um, what does this parable mean to us today? How can we put it in context? Well, during the last week, I have drafted and redrafted the conclusion to this sermon many times, each time getting lost in the labyrinth. Uh, you might be thinking to yourself, I know exactly what the parable means. And if that's the case, that's wonderful. Clearly, it's spoken to you clearly about something, and that's wonderful. I'm still grappling with the details. And, and that's, that's the beauty of Christ's parables, the genius of them. They're simple, and yet they're inexhaustible with respect to meaning. But broadly, broadly, I'd say that the parable is about the fact that a response is required. A response to God's invitation to table fellowship with him. Some ignore that altogether. They're just too preoccupied by life even to respond. Still others are so invested in some alternate ideology or human religion that the only response they're capable of is to attack and kill God's messengers. Yet and nevertheless, a response is required. And human beings are creatures made by God for God. As is obvious in uh, the parable... Uh, human beings have no independent right to existence. We have no claim to this planet or to the next breath of air we breathe except that we are in right relationship with our Creator. Except that we, have, except that we are in right relationship to our Creator, we have no right to be here. And we are on literally borrowed time. A response is required. If we reject him, we destroy ourselves. And historically, that's plain and obvious. Without God, we self-destruct. Historically, that's obvious. Theologically, that is the judgment of God. You were made for me. If you reject me, you'll self-destruct. In the presence of God, both now and always, there is no room for what the Bible calls boasting or what we might call a sense of entitlement, or self-confidence, or self-reliance, or self-righteousness. There's, there's, there's no way of being in God's presence on our own terms. On His terms, and His terms only. 
what counts, therefore, is responding and responding with repentance. Turning back to God such that God is recognized truly to be God and such that we, we make God our God and we obey him as God. His identity shapes our identity. His, his uh, interests um, and priorities become our interests and priorities. And, and we praise and thank him for the invitation, which we can see plainly is the outworking of extremely costly grace. And in, ex- in response to that extremely costly grace, we lay down our lives in, him, in his service, which is our costly response to costly grace. Everything surrendered to Jesus, that every area of our lives might bear fruit for him. Otherwise, you'll give the kingdom to others. 